City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. Good morning. Um, There are a lot of different places that have really impacted informed me as a person, as a man. Um, certainly one of them is on Lookout Court in Greenwood, Indiana. It's my childhood home. Uh, another really foundational place in my life is the campus of Indiana University, which I think they had a game last night, didn't they? What happened? They, they beat Purdue? That was, that was a couple weeks ago. Oh, they beat Purdue again. Come on, Hoosiers. That campus actually had a huge impact um, on my life. Another big place was Australia. So right after I chose to follow Jesus, I went on a mission trip all summer in Australia. And uh, a lot of things were really cemented of like, oh, this is what I'm going to be about. This is who I'm going to follow. This is um, the way that I'm going to live my life. But I would say potentially the most influential physical location, um, at least in my life, is uh, 2121 East Tropicana Avenue. I have a picture of that. That's the humble room um, in Las Vegas. And uh, this was our church offices. That's me. We got in trouble because someone was offended that the cross was tilted. We made it, and then we realized it didn't fit in the room standing up. (laughs) Um, And that's Jeremiah. He has one arm. So, I mean, this is not a highly professional place with a bunch of um, really educated or um, profound things. But in this room which uh, was our church offices, but really more than that, it was a house of prayer, I was formed and um, started to experience God probably more than any other place in the world, at least for me. Um, For four years, four days a week, we would meet in that room from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., and we would read and study scripture. We would pray through often a psalm or a chapter of the Bible. But as we would pray, we would worship and invite the Spirit of God in. And I had never, ever experienced anything like that before. I had never experienced um, a culture that was hungry for the Word of God and also hungry for the presence of God. The very first time I visited that place, it was just on a road trip. Catherine and I hadn't moved there yet. And I remember they were praying through a psalm and studying it and trying to figure out what was the context and what was the psalmist saying. And in the midst of study and worship, the presence of God fell, and we all just ended up on our face repenting. And I was like, oh, I have to move here. Um, I had never experienced what we now are calling the culture of and. I'd never seen a community of faith that didn't go just to the word or just to the spirit, but really held that intention. And uh, the culture of and, the the thing I experienced first in this room, but now what we're establishing here, is one of the most um, exciting, authentic expressions of what I believe it means to follow Jesus. The culture of and for me was absolutely irresistible. The culture of and uh, is what we're trying to do. It's the series that we're in right now. Now sometimes, because and is not always the thing we need to say, um, sometimes there needs to be an or. Right? Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You can either follow me or you cannot. You either like Fast and Furious or you're wrong. So every now and then we do need, we do need the word or. But in this series, we're talking about the power of and. And that we want to be a church that loves the word 
and goes after the Spirit of God. And next week, we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about the Spirit specifically. I'm going to talk about tongues, prophecy, and baptism. Here we go. But today, we're going to talk about um, not him, but it. And so, can I get a little bit of a drum roll? We're going to talk about it. It is more scrutinized than the State of the Union. It's more controversial than the Clintons. It's more talked about than Trump. It's more scandalous than any shade of gray. It can make girls weak in the knees with just a few letters under Tebow's eye. It can be screamed from a bullhorn from, that makes me want to die. It can change nations and alter history. It's completely true, and yet it is still such a mystery. It can ruin Thanksgiving with a single verse, and it can fit into most standard-sized purses. It is the Bible. It is the Bible. Let's hear it for the Bible. Come on. Thank you. Now, I made a mistake this week. Uh, usually the first couple days of the week I study, the second couple days I write. And I started digging into the context and how the Bible came together and, and the way that it was formed. And, and I mean, I just nerded out and I, I studied all four days. And I have currently 90 minutes of material ready. Some of you are raising your hands. Others of you have that look of utter fear. <laughs> I have trimmed it down. Um, and I've, ma- I've regretted not making this a series instead of just a sermon. So if you want to know more, uh, some of my best content I feel like I had to cut out, which is really sad. But here's um, the big idea, because we're just about to go hard after facts and how this thing came together, and can we trust it, and what is it written to, and who's it written for, and all of that. Uh, but here's the big idea. This is what, if you leave with anything, I want you to leave with this as you think about the Bible. It is not a reference book. It is not a manual on how to live your life, although it can function in some ways with both of those things. But what kind of narrative, what kind of um, writing is the Bible? It's not primarily something that just tells you what to do. The Bible starts like this in the beginning, and it ends, the second to last paragraph says, and they will reign forever and ever. What kind of writing does that sound like to you? It's a story. The Bible is primarily a story. Now, it's a true story. And so this book, love this book, this book is an epic, true story of what God has done to redeem and form his people. And so as we get in the midst of all the facts and all of these cool things, or at least I think they're cool and six of you do too, as you're in the midst of that, I want you to remember, this book is a story. It's a true story, but it's a story that invites you into a response, The big question this morning is, will you allow yourself to get swept into the story? Will you allow yourself to get swept into the story that God has been writing? And and here's the challenge. It's hard to get swept up into a story that you're not familiar with. It's hard to get swept up into a story that you're not familiar with. So um, we're going to start, as you can see, for sale on City Church's website. Relevance is coming. I think relevance is coming. I don't think I've lost him, but we're going to go hard after a bunch of different things, and if you want to know more, I have plenty more to say, but here we go. The Bible is actually not just one book, but is a collection of books. It's a small library of books or scrolls. Bible means scroll. That was the original um, way that it came together was a bunch of scrolls. The longest book in the Bible, according to word count, is Jeremiah. The shortest book is 3 John. Um, it is broken into two, primarily two large collections around two big covenants that God has made with people. We call them testaments. 
the Old and the New Testament. So the Old Testament actually makes up about 75% of your Bible, 39 books in all, a.k.a. it's known as the Hebrew Bible. We call it Old Testament, but a lot of people would call it the Hebrew Bible. That's how I'm going to refer to it for the rest of today. You hear Hebrew Bible, you think Old Testament. The Old Testament has four primary parts that go in order. This is the way that it's laid out for us. First of all is the law, which are the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Second is then books of history, all the way from Joshua to Esther. I am totally manipulating you guys. She is cute. That's Esther, guys. To wisdom, which is Job, all the way to Song of Solomon. That includes books like Psalms. And then the last part of the Old Testament are the prophets, three major, 12 minor, all the way from Isaiah to Malachi. The Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, although there are parts of Aramaic in there. Here's what's important about the Old Testament. I got way more material that I can't cover. I got way more pictures of Esther, but I can't show them all. The, the big idea around the Old Testament is that this was the literature that Jesus read. This, I mean, this was what, when he referred to Scripture, this is what he was referring to. Now, when he referred to it, it was in a different order, but all of the same books. What he would have been referring to, and this is going to make you sound so cool at the water cooler, he was referring to the Tanakh, which is just an acronym, Tanakh. Tanakh, the T stands for Torah. Again, it's actually the same first five books that we have. Um, if you're in the Bible in a year right now, you are deep with us in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, kind of back and forth there, and you're loving it. You are. You're loving it. You're loving the sacrificial law. You're loving to see how the tabernacle came together. I know. That's where we are. The second part of the Tanakh, the N, is the Nevaim, which means prophets in Hebrew. Now, they include books like Joshua and Samuel, but then all of the rest of the prophets. This will be on the test, by the way, Nevaim. And then the last part is the Ketavim which just means writings. Sometimes they uh, just refer to the biggest book in the Ketavim, so it's also the Psalms. So Jesus would have been reading the Tanakh, which is all the same books, all the same words in your Old Testament, just he would have had them in a different order that would have followed this order. And so this is what Jesus would have read. Jesus actually refers to the Tanakh in the New Testament in Luke twenty-two forty-four. He says this. He says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, or the writings, the Ketavim. We love the Old Testament. We think the Old Testament is still relevant. We think that we can learn from the Old Testament primarily because Jesus loved the Old Testament. Jesus held the Old Testament in high regard. Jesus considered it authoritative. So it's not just some old, outdated book from a different religion. There are, still, there are still parts of it that are relevant to us today. And the reason that we take it authoritatively is because primarily, Luke twenty two forty four, Jesus took the Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, he took them authoritatively. That's why we like the Old Testament. It's not just some outdated covenant although we're not under it anymore, but it is still relevant to our lives. So how the Old Testament came to be, I love, if you want more information on this, I love what Tim Mackey has done in this area. He's the creator of the Bible Project. But he likens the way that the Old Testament came together, because the way the Old Testament and the New Testament came together are very different. He likens the way the Old Testament came together as an aspen grove. We have a picture of an aspen grove. This is actually, and this is crazy, And some of you might know this. Uh, Savannah already told me she knew what it was, so 
You can leave if you do. This is the largest single organism in the world. Because an aspen grove actually just has one set, often has one set of roots that then starts to spring up. This is not hundreds of trees. This is one organism. And in the same way, he, Tim Mackey, likens the compilation of the Old Testament to an aspen grove. It started and the foundation was the law. And then the people of Israel started to record and collect and, and put together this book over the course of a thousand years. Now, does that mean we can't trust it? I'll get to that in a second. But it started to come together and it started to be compiled by the Jewish people with the basis of the law. And even more so than the basis of the law, it really is a constant reference back to the circle of the story that we see in Genesis, which is that God draws near, man draws away, and God finds a way back, usually through a man or woman, to bring himself back near. And it's the story we see over and over again. God, or man rebels against God and he sends Noah, or he sends Abraham, or maybe deeper in the Old Testament, he sends uh, Moses, or he sends David. And the whole Old Testament is building towards this. It's referencing, every one of these books is referencing, how are we going to get back to the place that we started? Genesis is the foundation, and the rest of the prophets and the writings are saying, there's got to be a way back to this. God has promised it, and we're waiting. Basically, the whole Old Testament is waiting on a man, waiting on one main character. And we'll wait a second to figure out who that is. The Old Testament is a collection of collections. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles even say as much about that, that they were not ancient writings. They were collections of ancient writings. Now, this really challenged me, especially in the last few years, because my version of the Bible growing up actually fell from heaven. God wrote it all, and it was absolutely divine with no human interaction in it. And that's just not the way that the Old Testament came together. It was a group of people that were recording their history as God was interacting with them. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was um, sort of finalized, or it started to take shape uh, around 200 or th- between 200 and 300 B.C., so a couple hundred years before Jesus lived. So that's why we know when Jesus refers to Scripture, he's referring to what was already started to be formed as a solid canon or a compilation of books or scrolls. So Jesus referred to the Hebrew Bible, and it's the same thing that we have. And what's crazy, and if you want to look into it, there are councils and all kinds of crazy ways that this book came together. But the craziest part of all is once they started to solidify these 39 books, all sects of Judaism, whether it was Pharisees or Essenes, Sadducees, and even the early church in the first century, all agreed, yep, those are the 39 that should be there. Now, I don't know if you know this, but religious people don't tend to agree on many things. Now, they didn't agree on how to interpret those 39 books, but every sect of Judaism and the early church said, yeah, those are the books that should be in there. And so can we trust the compilation that was put together? I would say so. Anytime a bunch of religious people agree, that says something. Going on, if you grew up Catholic and were in a very Catholic city, you're probably wondering, where are the rest of the books? This is called the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books. These are kind of in the middle of the Old Testament and the New Testament if you have a Catholic Bible. And it, it, I, my opinion of these, and I, I'm now convicted to read them, um, has changed over the years. I grew up thinking like they must all be heretical. <laughs> Very black and white view. 
Um, and there's a reason that these are not included in your Bible um, if you are Protestant, and there's a reason that we don't consider them equal to the rest of Scripture. But these were all important enough for the Jewish people to pass on and say, hey, we love these too. There's a couple big reasons we have not included them, but I used to think, well, these all must just be heretical talking about a different God. Actually, that doesn't seem to be true. The way that I've been encouraged and I'm going to start interacting with these is the same way I would in, uh, interact with a book by Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis. Really good, can help shape my spiritual life, but I'm not going to hold it at the same level of authority as I will the Old or the New Testament. Now, these um, might be worth reading. You can decide. I'd start with the actual Bible, um, if you haven't read that. But these, um, uh, for primarily two reasons, are not included in your Bible. Number one, these were all written um, a decent amount after the rest of the 39 books. These were written after um, those, and so in Scripture or in ancient writings, earlier is always better. And so these are just later, newer books. The second reason why, and here's why we can trust the Old Testament, is because almost every Old Testament book, a New Testament writer refers back to and says, oh, that's authoritative. No New Testament writer, um, whether it's Paul or Peter or even Jesus, none of them refer to any of these books and say, hey, that's, that's what it says in Scripture. Jesus all the time is referring to Genesis or Psalms and saying, hey, as it says in Scripture. So when Jesus gives authority to an Old Testament book, we say, oh, that must be worth holding in high regard. But Jesus never does that. Paul never does that. None of the New Testament writers do that with any of these books. That is the primary, those are the two big reasons why we don't include them in ours. There's a whole other discussion that we could talk about there. But I can tell you that I've been challenged to actually read these books because I grew up with a very black and white view. Um, but I love C.S. Lewis, I love Tim Keller, and I want to start to love these books, and they will not be on par with the older, the New Testament. How are we doing? We doing good? We still got some more to go. New Testament, though. How about that? Let's get to the New Testament, which makes up 25% of your Bible, 27 books, which makes their 66 books in all. There are four parts, again, of the New Testament, and I'm just going to talk about the first part, but there are, um, uh, like, biographies. We call them gospels. There's four of those. And there's a history book right after that, which is the book of Acts. Then there are letters. And then there's a, a final genre that's written in the New Testament, which is apocalyptic or prophetic, which is the book of Revelation. All 27 good. Don't start there if you've never read the Bible. <laughs> the general theme is the lamb is worthy of honor and Jesus is coming back, but it's a different genre. All of scripture is important. I don't know if I want to say any part is more important, but I do put a lot of weight in those first four books of the New Testament, and I think you should too. Those are called the Gospels, and that's basically what I'm going to go in on today. What we know is by the early to mid-100s AD, um, these four Gospels were being uh, circulated around the church, and they were being viewed as uh, authoritative in regards so the church started to spread, and we read about that in the book of Acts, but as the church spread, also these four writings were the first ones to sort of go viral. So before there was Charlie Bit My Finger, there was the book of Mark that just goes everywhere, and everyone's talking about, hey, have you read Mark's account? Have you read Matthew's eyewitness account of what was going on? And so as the church spread, these books spread, and they started very early on, like about 100 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, these books were written and they were being viewed as authoritative in the church. Now, again, timing is really important of the writings of anything that's ancient. And so we want earlier to be better if we're going to assume it's trustworthy. And so I'm going to throw up a slide 
of the timing of when Jesus lived, but also when these four Gospels were written. That's uh, their best guess of what Jesus looked like. We know that's not true. He had blonde hair, blue eyes. He looked a lot like me. We know that. If you're new, welcome. That's a joke. (laughs) And then there's a 40-year gap, and uh, most, almost every scholar agrees the book of Mark was written uh, first, then Matthew and Luke about the same time, and John was last. And here's what biblical critics um, love to do. And God bless them, academia, they're so smart. But they love to make a really big deal out of that 40-year gap. And I get it, that's a long time. Um, That makes sense in some ways. It feels like a long time. And what they do, and the common thing that I've heard, and maybe you've critiqued the Bible this way, and if so, that's great, um, of, man, a lot can happen in 40 years. And they'll liken it to this, and I love this. These really smart people with PhDs will say, it's kind of like a middle school sleepover when you play the game of telephone. And they'll say, man... That's like a 40-year game of telephone. And I remember playing telephone in middle school. You know, it starts off with, like, the rug is dirty, and by the time you get halfway around the circle, it's like Matt loves Haley, which is how every game of telephone ends in middle school. And, uh, and so what they've said is, look, that was our experience in middle school. That must be what happened to the Bible. And if you're ready for a dramatic statement, and I've got enough time for about a four-minute rant, we good for that? Here's what I have to say. This, this, and... Humbly, I'm not as smart as these people. This is colonizing the Bible. Now, colonizing is a a hot word right now. How uh, sometimes the West can colonize other places or white people can colonize their culture in different parts of America. We don't like that. We don't want to do it to our Bible. Colonizing the Bible means I'm going to take my culture and my experience of what I had in middle school in some kid's basement and I'm going to throw it onto a culture 2,000 years ago. The problem is, that's not real. That's not true. The Jews were an oral culture. So their mind, when we assume, their mind probably was also melted by Twitter and Instagram. No, it wasn't. 2,000 years ago, do you know what they did for entertainment? They didn't scroll. They didn't watch YouTube. They told stories. This is what those people did. They were expert storytellers. They were constantly telling stories. They weren't listening to the radio. They were telling stories. They weren't watching YouTube. They were telling stories. They weren't scrolling mindlessly, trying to engage in whatever someone's saying halfway across the world. They were telling stories. They were expert storytellers. Now, it's really impressive. I have a few verses memorized. They had books of the Bible memorized, and they were experts at telling them in accurate detail. Now that's 2,000 years ago, and we want to put our experience on them, but even let's say that that's true, that their minds have also been melted by social media and soundbite culture. Even today, I'd love for you to try this out. This is going to be overwhelming. Catherine's going to hate this, but um, I want you to ask me how Catherine and I met, and I want you to ask Catherine how Catherine and I met. And if you ask us how we met, we can tell that story backwards and forwards. Do you know what's not going to happen if you ask us how we met? We're not going to look at each other and say, man, gosh, I don't really remember. It was was like 12 years ago. No, we're going to tell you that story, and I could stop mid-sentence, and she could pick it up, because we've told that story over and over and over again, and we'll tell it in a pretty much the exact same way. Now, with me, you might get a little bit more of a dramatic version. With her, you're going to get a lot more racy, sexualized language. But that's, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Hey, I'm coming to that marriage conference, by the way. I'll be there. 
I don't know if she will. I can tell that story over and over again because I've told that story over and over again. And do you know why she can tell that story, I can tell that story? Because it changed our lives. What happened to me in Woodburn 112 years ago changed my life. It's changed the trajectory of the way I'm going. What happened to her 12 years ago in Woodburn 100 changed the trajectory of her life. And we love to tell the story because it's changed the way that we're going. Now, you're going to tell me, Bible scholar, you're going to tell me, critic of the Bible, that you walk around for Jesus for three and a half years. You hear the most mind-blowing sermon you've ever heard before. You watch him heal diseases that you didn't even know. You had a burning in your heart that you've never experienced before, and you never tell the story again? Does that sound possible? I'll be honest, and this is a bold statement. I don't have enough faith to be a Bible critic. I don't have enough faith to be a Bible critic because Jesus would have wrecked their lives. And I want you to imagine someone coming up to Matthew and saying, hey, let's say it's 70 AD. Hey, weren't you one of the guys that followed Jesus around? What are the chances? Let's just play statistics. What are the chances that Matthew's like, oh, yeah, I was. Gosh, I totally forgot about that. Um, That was like a whole other lifetime ago. You know, I wonder how he's doing. Tell me the chances that that's what Matthew says 40 years later. No, that man would have been telling that story over and over again. So if we can tell the story of how we met, I promise you these men, these eyewitnesses, these men men and women could tell you that story. I trust the Gospels. I've gone over on time. The Gospels are collections of stories, but here's what's important. They are collections of stories that were written down while eyewitnesses were still alive. So if someone goes crazy and starts adding a bunch of stuff to the book of Mark, Mark's alive. He can be like, hey, that's not what I wrote. And yet we see no evidence of that. If stuff starts circulating and John loses his mind, there's eyewitnesses that are like, man, that's not what happened. But yet we see no evidence in the early church or beyond of these four gospels not being accepted. And so you can trust the gospels. You can't, it's a historic book and it's telling a story and it's inviting you into it. You can trust the rest of the New Testament as well. Um, There was a pretty heavily scrutinized process of how they came together. I'm going to move through this quick. The ways that the New Testament canon was chosen was, number one, did that book, this is the questions they were asking, did that book reveal and confirm God's qualities? Were there things in there that were affirming the ministry of Jesus, the burial, the resurrection, uh, all of the gospels lend itself to the disciples saying, hey, that was the Messiah, It's a big deal. That's the reason we don't have the Gospel of Thomas, FYI. It doesn't talk about the death of Jesus, which is a pretty big deal to us. Number two, was there communal acceptance in the early church? And number three, was the author authoritative? Was this written by someone we aren't sure about, or was this written by one of the eyewitnesses, or Luke, who did a bunch of investigative work, or was it written by the brother of Jesus? All of these things are important, and so it goes through this process, and that's how your 27 books in the New Testament were chosen. There was never... to our knowledge in history. There was never a moment in a dark room where a bunch of powerful men got together and said, hey, I, I need this book in there. Constantine didn't control it. The Da Vinci Code's a great movie, great story. It's just not true, so sorry. That's not how this was come to, had, had come together. This came together with a lot more thought and I would argue a lot more divine inspiration. Now, this is the divinity of the Bible. I'm going to shift for the last few minutes to the humanity of the Bible, which is easily the most challenging part to me because, again, my version of the Bible growing up dropped from heaven. It was perfect. Humans didn't touch it. Humans didn't have any interaction with it. Uh, There was no humanity on it. And yet, 
The more I study the Bible, the more I see, oh, there are human fingerprints all over this book, all over each collection of these books. The Bible is divine and it is human. It was written by humans, real humans with real problems. That's who wrote the Bible. What I like to imagine is that the biblical authors picked up a pen, they blacked out, and two hours later, the book of Romans was written. That's not what happened. And in some ways, it feels like, man, that makes the Bible more fragile, but actually, I think it makes it more durable. Humans were intimately involved in writing the Bible, and the Spirit was intimately involved as well. Uh, Probably the biggest verse in the Bible about the writing or the authority of the Bible is 2 Timothy 3.16. You've probably heard this before. All Scripture is God-breathed. The literal translation of that, uh, and I love the image of God's breath, but the literal translation is all Scripture is God-spirited. The Spirit of God is in every piece of Scripture. Um, I, uh, I've, Catherine and I have been watching um, The Chosen, and I love, we're going to sh- watch a video right now, I love the way that um, they depicted the potential, and we don't know this to be exactly true, but the potential way that John, one of the disciples, would have 40 years later, 50 years later, been writing his gospel account. How do you write a biography about a man that wrecked you? And I love the way that they show the interaction that he has between remembering Jesus and then interacting with Scripture. And so I want to watch this because I think this brings a lot of the humanness into it. The Bible came together with real human personalities. I love when I read uh, the Gospel of Matthew, how Matthew, a Jew, makes all of these Jewish references. But then when I read Luke, who is a doctor, he, leaves, he puts all of these details and cities and dates in there because they wrote their account 
still with their personality intact. I love reading Paul, who we knew was a pretty well-educated man, and the depth of theology and the, 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 the beauty of his writing is just incredible. And then we read a letter from John, and what we know about John is John was wrecked by the love of Jesus. And you read First John, and this guy can't get over the love of God. Their personalities absolutely make their way into Scripture, yet all Scripture is God-spirited. We don't just trust the Bible because uh, it came together in a, in a really complicated but divine way, but we trust the Bible because the Bible has power in our lives. When I read Psalm 126, and a lot of you know we went through a five-year journey of infertility, but I was reading one morning Psalm 126.5, and it wasn't just words that were written 3,000 years ago. The word was alive to me. I read, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And I knew that was from my heart right then. And for the next three years, I read Psalm 126.5 over and over and over again. Because the Bible isn't just true, it is powerful. And we can trust what it has to say. The band can come up, and I wanna, I wanna finish by a little bit of a summary on how should we engage with the Bible. And I think some ways it helps to say what the Bible is, and in other ways it helps to say what the Bible is not. And so as you approach your Bible this afternoon or maybe tomorrow morning, here's what I want you to remember that it is and is not. The Bible is a story. 43% of the Bible is narrative, but the Bible is not a divine rule book. And if you start to read it like a divine rule book, you will be confused and frustrated. The Bible is a story. The story is the thing, and the rules are in pieces of it. The Bible is telling us about God. That is the purpose of the Bible, but it is not a theology answer book. So if you're looking for every answer you have about God, the, the, the Bible was not written for that purpose. It leaves some questions in there. It would be, um, in some ways, like watching James Bond and at the end of the movie saying, okay, now I'm ready to be an international agent. It's not how that works. The movie of James Bond is not preparing you to be an international agent, it's to entertain you. The point of the Bible is not to answer every one of your theological questions, but to tell you a story and invite you into it. The Bible is a cross-cultural experience. The Bible is not written to 21st century Westerners. The Bible is to help me hear God's voice, but the Bible is not, and I catch this, American, the Bible is not a love letter to me. I know, the world revolves around each one of us, the Bible does not. The Bible is supposed to help me hear God's voice, but it is not a love letter to me. The, Messiah, the, the, the Bible is not about me. It's not written to me. It's about a Messiah. And when you read this book, it becomes real to you because the Messiah is real to you. So I want to close with this. Um, Jesus said the whole Old Testament is about him. He said that uh, these things were written so that you would know that the Messiah must suffer and die and has the ability to forgive sins. I want you to read your Bible through that lens, that a Messiah came, he suffered and died, so that he could reconcile his people back to himself. So we're going to stand and we're going to worship, but I want you to um, close your eyes and I want you to receive um, what the Bible is. It is an incredible book, it has authority in your life, but it is also a powerful book. The Bible is an epic story, telling about, about a God who has drawn near to his people. We love the Bible because it tells us a story about how God has drawn near. 
And more than that, the Bible invites you into parts of that story. We love the Bible because it engages us and it invites us into a journey that God is having with us. And so let's pray. Let's pray. Whatever preconceived notion, whether it's too academic or maybe it's not believable, whatever you have as you approach this book, I want to pray that that would fall off and that a right view of the Bible would come to to pass. For me, it's I don't see the humanness in the Bible enough, and I can often get caught up in that. I don't know what it is for you. But let's close our eyes, and if you're comfortable, let's welcome what God says about his book, and let's let anything that we say about it to fall off. Jesus, we love your word. We believe your word. We love the way that you have inspired it and the way that your spirit has empowered humans to write it. God, would you put that book uh, as a right view in our mind? Lord, we welcome whatever you have to say, and we want more of you. Let your word lead us to getting to know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond to God in his word. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com give.